0: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're back with part
2: two of our discussion of the Hai Jing, the the, uh, the ancient Chinese work of mythic geography that we introduced in the last episode. If you're just coming in on this one, I really recommend you go back and listen to the previous episode first, because that'll make sense of what we're talking about today.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's just really it was really fun to dive into the, the nature and history of. Of this ancient Chinese text, uh, not not only to learn about it and about the you know the Chinese culture it emerged from, but it also I think exemplifies a lot of realities about texts and about old texts and old books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, well worth uh, listening to if you happen to skip it.
2: Now, the brief recap is that the Shan Jing, uh, this title is sometimes translated as the classic of mountains and seas or the canon of mountains and seas. One of the authors who did some translations and commentary that we talked about in the last episode, Richard Strasberg, I think he translates it as guideways through the mountains and seas. This is... In, in some ways, you could look at it as an ancient travel book. It's a book of ancient mythic geography that tells you about mountains and seas, seas sometimes in a metaphorical kind of sense so not just meaning water, but expanses of the world uh, and the animals and plants and minerals you can find there
0: and often the gods and monsters that you can find there. That's right. So in this episode, we're just going to talk about some of the various gods and monsters that pop up Um Uh, Some big ones, some small ones, Uh, some that turns out they're not even perhaps even that fantastic at at all. But the description is kind of fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're going to we're going to start big, though, with one of the I think the more interesting looking uh, creatures, at at least as it's often depicted in illustrations (laughs) for this book, but also in terms of just like how deeply weird it happens to be. Uh, We're going to be talking about Hundun, um, which uh, Ann Burl translates as muddle thick. Uh, but this, uh, this is a, I think we touched on this creature very briefly in the last episode. Right. Well, we were talking about some of the
2: illustrations that accompany the, uh, the at least the, the Strasbourg translation of these selections from the Hai Jing. Now, the illustrations that we have in, in editions like Strasbourg's, they don't go back all the way. These mm-hmm. are not illustrations that would have accompanied it in its earliest form. They're more like a few hundred years old, but they're still wonderful. But this one reference, actually, the, the entry is under the name Dijong, and mm-hmm. the Dijong contains a reference to this idea. Idea of Hun Dun, which we'll explain more as we go on, but the Dijiang is sometimes depicted as having no face and no eyes, and in these these classic woodblock illustrations, he's like a six legged winged beast with butts on both ends.
0: Well, um, as we'll get into, I, I don't think they're butts. Um, I, I would I would describe it as also looking a bit like an ottoman, like a, a like a four, and I mean I'm sorry, a six legged ottoman with wings.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it's, it's a strange looking creature. And so let me go ahead and read from the Shanghai Jing. This is Beryl's translation. 350 leagues further west is a mountain called Mount Sky. It has a great amount of gold and jade and green male yellow. The river brave rises here and then flows southwest to empty into hot water valley. There is a God here who looks like a yellow sack. He is scarlet like cinnabar fire. He has six feet and four wings he is muddle thick he has no face and no eyes. He knows how to sing and dance. He is in truth, the great god long river now that is an excellent
2: string of sentences uh, we We got in the last episode into some issues about difficulties in translating the uh, the ancient Chinese graphs that are used in this text and how to turn them into modern concepts or uh, or, or words in other languages. So, for example, some differences here in Strasbourg's translation. Uh, so the mountain in Beryl's is called Mount Sky. In Strasbourg, it's the Celestial Mountain. In Beryl, green male yellow for Strasbourg is green realgar. And realgar is the name of an arsenic sulfide mineral that uh, forms these striking red crystals. Birol's River Brave is imminent river for Strasbourg. I think I like River Brave better. Um, But the biggest difference is that where Birol says he is muddle-thick, he has no face and no eyes, Strasbourg translates, he exists in a state of confusion with
0: no face or eyes. Yeah, and in in this we're getting into that term, um, hundun, uh, which can be used in a couple of different ways um i believe it can be used as a as like a noun and an adjective uh, this according to Yang Ann and Turner in their book Chinese mythology so it can be a, a descriptive uh term or it can be the, the noun it can refer to chaos and primeval chaos but it also can refer to a person who is quote ignorant and muddle-headed Mm-hmm. So uh, e- easily you can see how this complicates the the translation process.
2: And Strasberg writes about this, uh, that that there are various lines of he, what he calls associative reasoning and linguistic connections that have taken the Dijiang and made it uh, in many commentaries not just a creature, not just a critter of the mountains, but somehow the personification of what he calls cosmogonic chaos. And this is the idea of Hundun. Uh, And he says that uh, the conclusion here is largely based on the line, he exists in a state of confusion, that word confusion being hundun, H-U-N-D-U-N in the English, and how that could be taken as the proper name hundun, which is a a chaos personification, a kind of uh, confusion deity that there are actual myths and fables about.
0: Yeah, like for instance, um, even in modern Mandarin, chaos theory is known as hundun-shia. chaos theory math <laughs> so the, the illustration that accompanies this is uh, i think really quite cute in many ways uh, i'm kind of reminded of a tribble, you know especially in its facelessness and uh and all now um what you said earlier joe about uh, about this being uh, looking like a winged and legged butt um or a double butt even um <laughs> you know I, you are tempting the gods of chaos i think yeah. uh, by, by stating this and interestingly enough uh if you were to say it, it looks like it has one butt or two butts, you'd be completely wrong as well, because the god's lack of bodily orifices is stressed in parallel texts from the 4th century BCE, according to Beryl.
2: Yes. Yeah, so so if this were a creature with six legs and four wings and a butt on each end, the butts on each end would have to be without anuses. They would just be smooth uh, butts w- w- with no orifice at all.
0: Now, um, it, it's interesting... That um, uh, and this is something to keep in mind if this Lunar New Year, you happen to have wontons. Apparently, uh, Hundun has some connection, possibly some connection or faint connection to the word for wonton. And indeed, if you look at it, it does kind of look like a wonton with wings and feet.
2: Yeah, it's a cute, fluffy little package. It can absolutely look like a dumpling of some sort. Uh, or uh, to go back to the original uh, passage in the Shanghai Jing, it is compared to a sack. And in some ways, a dumpling is like a sack for food contents.
0: Now, she mentions that the legs are, are often described as being reptile legs, and uh, it has these yellow and scarlet markings. And though eyeless and faceless, it is also the originator of song and dance. Mm. Now, this this really got me thinking uh, because it made me, uh, it made me think back to uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Now, uh, I'm not aware that Cormac McCarthy ever drew... Uh, any inspiration from Chinese writings or myth. Uh, but, but I am strongly reminded of Judge Holden in all of this, the murderous scalp hunter and Gnostic uh, archon in, his West, in that Western novel. Uh, because aside from Holden's deep connections with chaos and the supernatural overtones to the characters, there's this fabulous bit from the closing pages of the novel in which, quote, he is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. And he's also described in the scene, as, as uh, seen particularly as being naked and hairless pale quote like an enormous infant so i would propose that judge holden might well be uh hundun
2: well hundun while in uh some manifestations is a sort of from what i can tell morally neutral there are
0: evil hundun as well yeah and i think it's it's interesting that chaos would would have these sort of different um definitions and different um you know, tonal shifts, uh, because a, a lot of uh, realities concerning chaos, it, it does depend on on who's telling the story, uh, who's thinking about chaos. You know, uh, I'm again reminded of that line from A Connoisseur of Chaos by Wallace Stevens. A violent order is a disorder and a great disorder is an order. And these two things are one, you know, Um Oh,
2: you're emphasizing one man's order is another man's chaos, like uh, yeah, trash and treasure. Yeah,
0: yeah. it, it, it kind of depends uh, it Depends who's, who's commentating on it. So uh, the most cited version of this myth comes from uh, Zhong Zhu, and it's a third century B.C.E. text that's traditionally attributed to this Taoist uh, 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 philosopher. Um, so anyway, he tells the story in which the chaos deity, uh, Hundun, resides in a central region. And it's this central region where two gods from far-flung parts of the world come to meet. And these two gods are fast and swift. And, uh, you know, they they felt they, after a while, they've been meeting here, um, you know, I I guess like having coffee and stuff. uh, They felt they owed Hundun a debt of gratitude. But how do you repay a being who has none of the seven openings of the face, right? You can't sing to them because there are no ear holes. Uh, You can't speak, nor can you speak a word of thanks to them. You can't gift them food or wine. So these two gods did the only natural thing. They decided to chisel holes into the chaos deity. So they chiseled one hole per day for seven days. And then on the seventh day, uh, the god Hundun dies. (laughs) Do you mind if I just read the the
2: direct translation that Strasberg has of this? Because I think the wording is very funny. It's very brief. So the, his version is the Thearch of the Southern Sea was named Sudden. The Thearch of the Northern Sea was named Hasty and the Thearch of the Center was named Hundun. Once sudden and hasty, together paid a visit to Hundun's domain, and were treated most courteously by him. They discussed among themselves how to repay his generosity, saying, All men have seven orifices to see, hear, eat, and breathe. Only he does not. Why not drill them for him? (laughs) Every day they drilled one hole, but after seven days, Hundun died. So they made it six days. They drilled six holes in his head, and he was still okay. But when they got to the seventh hole, it was just, just too much.
0: Now, you might be wondering, well, what could this possibly mean? This just sounds like, like sheer madness, right? <laughs> um, well, apparently the message of the myth that uh, Zhang tells is that one must not inflict artificial order on the natural world. So fast and swift here are agents of unnatural order attempting to inflict their way of thinking um, in, in, a, in a way that is you know, ultimately disastrous, you know, killing the entity in the process.
2: Yeah, I I got to thinking about this. So Strasberg explains it pretty much in the same way. He says that uh, the traditional way this story is interpreted within Taoism is that Hundun is the embodiment of primordial chaos. Quote, who is a victim of purposeful activity, destroyed by the well-intentioned, though dangerously misguided efforts of humanizing civilization. The fable thus reflects the philosopher's nostalgia for a golden age of primitive society, when all life was believed to be in accord with the simple patterns of the natural way, in other words, the Tao. So that seems to be the classic interpretation that was presented in this ancient text. Uh, you know, there, there used to be a time when humans were more in accord with nature, and then there were these civilizing impulses that that led us to, you know, create the kind of complicated society we live in today, and that sort of ruins everything and and kills this this uh, being of primordial simplicity. But I was thinking about another way to interpret pretty much the same themes. Is that it could be applied to the perils of trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Mm. Uh, You know, that classic story of when there is some kind of organic, chaotic, creative process that really works, and then somebody tries to formalize it and impose order and it just dies. Uh, you know, this can be this is true of all different kinds of creativity and fun. I was trying to think of a better example from a higher form of literature. But the, the best example that actually came to my mind was the movie Wayne's World. <laughs> uh, the plot of Wayne's World is that uh, Wayne and his friend Garth, they do a public access TV show from their basement that is lovable because it is a stupid, improvised, screw around project by a couple of losers in their basement. But everybody likes it and it's fun. And then Rob Lowe shows up. And he's a slick business executive, and he decides to buy their show and turn it into a slick, high-budget production with sets and sponsors and professionalism. And the magic dies, and the show is terrible.
0: I'm also reminded, of course, of the the, the goose that lays the golden eggs. Right, right. Yes, can, you know, where it lays these fabulous golden eggs, and then you you you're like, well, I want it, I want all the eggs, so I'm just going to cut it open. You know, uh, and that one kind of lines up, and it kills the the goose, of course. Uh, right. But that kind of lines up with this one as well, and since it's both involved this, um, this, this visceral violence that is perpetrated on something in an attempt to, um, uh, to get the most out of it and to instill some sort of order on things.
2: I guess maybe it's just because we work in the media space that the main ideas that, that come to my brain are media ones. But it does absolutely seem to be a repli- like a repeating pattern in the real world. It's like something is creative and interesting and fun and then order gets imposed on it and it just dies.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder what Dr. Ian Malcolm would have had to say about all this uh, <laughs> concerning genetically uh, modified uh, resurrected dinosaurs and so forth. I and mean, he is a worshipper of hundun in some respects. Yeah, yeah, he's
2: a practitioner of uh hundun jue, was it? Uh yes, I believe so. Yeah, the yeah. The, the chaos uh, uh chaos theory. Now, another thing Strasberg notes is that it is tempting to see parallels between the characteristics of this uh of this uh chaos creature hundun. And the idea of a formless void or the undifferentiated cosmos that exists prior to the creation of the world or of the cosmic order in a number of ancient cosmologies, Um, you know, the noise that existed prior to any signal. Now, why would that be, especially if you're taking it out of the the broader picture of Hundun as, a, as an ancient personification of chaos and into the specific example of the Dijang as the creature from the classic of the Mountains and Seas, uh, why would this be? Well, the Dijang has four wings, six legs, no face, no eyes. And this seems to imply that its movement is not directed. It's a kind of mm-hmm. omnidirectional wandering without purpose. And also the comparison of his body to a sack. What do sacks contain? Well, unless you put something in them, they contain emptiness. Mm. Now another thing Strasbourg says that's interesting, but I I don't think I really understood. Uh, he says that the body of the Dijong suggests creation myths where the universe is created from the body of a dead god, and this absolutely is a fascinating and common type of creation myth. But I'm not really sure I see the comparison there. He doesn't really explain that idea further. I I wonder if you can make anything
0: of that. Um, I, I didn't read about that uh, myself. It may, but I you know I instantly just think of. Of it looking like flesh, kind of just mm. uh, just generic flesh, you know. So here is yeah. like just a a lump of the the tissue of a god, and now it has wings and and feet. It's kind of sprouted them, um, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing style.
2: Right? Yeah, it's like hills with legs.
0: Now this doesn't really aid in our understanding of all this uh, at all, but it's kind of neat. Uh, I I was looking uh, through my my normal monster texts, and in uh, Jorge Luis Borges, The Book of Imaginary Beings, he does mention uh, this creature in passing, uh, referring to it as, as, uh, as tai Ching, uh getting at that, that Jing, um, uh name. Uh, and he just says, the Daijing is a supernatural bird that lives in the celestial mountains. It is bright red and has six legs and four wings, but it has neither a face nor eyes.
2: Now, I mentioned earlier that we would get to an evil hundun. Uh, so I just want to read a section from Strasbourg here in, in the Dijiang entry. So uh, regarding the, the potential malevolent Hundun, he writes, there is another historiographical tradition in Zhou's narratives to the spring and autumn annals which is a uh, it's a late 4th century BCE text, in which Hundun is the evil son of Thearch Hong, also known as Dihong. He is known as Hundun, that is, confusion, because of his lack of moral consciousness. As one of four evil offspring of Thearchs, Hundun is finally banished along with the rest by Shun, who sends them all to the periphery to quell demons, now, I'm not really very familiar with this myth. I don't know if you know anything about that. The, the bad deities here are sent off to the edges of the world to fight demons.
0: Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've read a little bit about this before, but also the idea of there being four of them is kind of interesting because I've read that those, the, these, these four perils are sometimes presented as the opposing force to the four benevolent animals, mm. those being the azure dragon, the vermilion bird, the white tiger, and the black tortoise.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, that that, that sounds familiar. Uh, Strasburg also writes, quote, Following another line of linguistic reasoning, Yuan Ke, who was born in 1916, conflated both traditions by identifying Jiang with Thearch Hong and also with the yellow Thearch, the latter considered the Thearch of the center in Five Agents Cosmology. Now, did Five Agents Cosmology come up in the previous episode?
0: I don't believe it did, but we did touch on on yellow uh, and the, the many different names for the yellow emperor, the yellow, yellow yellow thearch. I believe that's what they're referring to here.
2: Yeah. Now, Strasbourg writes that the idea of Hundun as a personification of confusion or chaos, that sort of went along, that that carried on for a while. There's evidence of it into the Han and the early Six Dynasties periods. And, uh, And eventually, in that period, he was canonized as a god. But then after that period, he seems to have mostly vanished from Chinese pantheons. Though the concept of Hundun, not necessarily as a personified deity, but just as an abstract principle survived in Chinese language and culture into later periods, uh, and, and uh, Strasbourg describes it as, quote, an abstract term denoting an impersonal state of universal chaos before the birth of the bipolar forces of yin and yang. And uh, Gopu also comments that the creature Dijang is actually cosmic confusion. Uh, though in the end, it's funny because despite all of these interpretations over the years, coming back to what was meant in the original text, Strasberg writes that, quote, the textual basis in this passage of the guideways for identifying Dijang, literally ark Long River, with the mythical figure Hundun is slim, and he can simply be regarded as a strange creature in his own right.
0: In a sense, like all these different um, attempts to understand it, uh, both from the academics and historians and ancient people and even ourselves. I mean, we're all kind of just drilling holes into the the chaos (laughs) deity, right? We're trying to inflict a certain amount of order on the, the whole premise. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: But I did want to take a brief digression.
2: Okay, so what if you assume Strasberg's final comment here is correct and that the the real author of this text would have said, no, no, has nothing to do with the primordial personification of chaos and confusion, uh, nothing to do with a, with a malevolent god. This is just a beast that has no face and has four wings and six legs. I, I wanted to see, okay – Are there animals without faces in an interesting way? Because, of course, we know there are animals that everybody's aware of the fact that they have no face, like oysters, sponges, starfish. These are part of the kingdom of the animals, and they don't have faces because that's just not how they evolved. It's not part of their body plan. It's not what they need. I was wondering could you find something like a deer without a face? I didn't find that, but there are animals with more recognizably face bearing body plans that nevertheless have evolved to have no face. And the coolest and creepiest example I came across, uh, I was reading about in a blog post from the Australian government's uh, natural environmental science program, Marine Biodiversity Hub. It was a blog post by a researcher named Diane Bray from May 31st, 2017, that was about a creature that they had discovered during a deep sea uh, expedition. Uh, so, So the author of this blog post writes, quote, A large, weird, faceless fish landed on the deck a couple of days ago. By faceless, I mean it had no eyes, nothing, not even tiny spots or modified areas indicating eyes beneath the skin. It came from 4,000 meters below the surface, where pressures are huge, the water is a mere one degree Celsius, and the seafloor landscape is pretty barren. Everyone was amazed." Uh, so she writes that they thought maybe they discovered a new species. They, they took uh, tissue samples for analysis. They started trying to come up with a name for the fish, but... Then one of their colleagues, a researcher named John Poganowski of the CSIRO's Australian National Fish Collection, quote, found something similar while working his way through various scientific publications. There it was, a cusk eel with the scientific name Typhlonus nasus. The word Typhlonus is apparently uh, derived from the Greek typhlos, meaning blind, and onos, meaning hake, a blind hake. Uh, now, I've attached a picture of this animal for you to look at here, Rob. The the large ones of these animals really have no externally visible eyes at all. They do actually have eyes, but this is even creepier than not having eyes. They have eyes that are completely covered underneath the skin of the head.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, the, the picture, it, it looks interesting. I, I don't know how grotesque it actually looks because you could imagine it just just emerging from the water and just flopping onto some rice and it's like instant sashimi. Right? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah, except,
2: I don't know, the the tail part of it looks a little bit kind of hairy or stringy in an unpleasant yeah, yeah, way. True. But,
0: yeah, true. Chop uh, that off.
2: But I see what you're getting at. Yeah, it just looks like a big old lump of, lump of fish meat.
0: Yeah, uh, no eyes to concern the, uh, the the customer or anything.
2: Right, they, it just naturally settles your stomach. It, it quells any concerns you may have about eating it while it's still wriggling. Uh, but so yeah, the eyes are covered by the skin on the head. Apparently, in the younger ones, you can see the eyes through the skin a little bit better. And it has a tiny mouth on the underside of its head, but it doesn't, you know, it's not something that's obvious just from looking at it from the front or from above. And now apparently,, uh, like I said, this this creature had actually been cataloged before. It was previously caught and described during the trawling of the Challenger expedition. Uh, in the 1870s. I think it was hmm. pulled up in 1874. And we've discussed the Challenger expedition on the show in the past. Uh, in previous episodes, you can check out the archive and search through it to find more. But and this was a, uh, a research project that took place on the HMS Challenger in the 1870s where they would use piano wire to drag these, uh, these trawling samplers along the bottom of the ocean as the ship was sailing and then trying to pull things up and see what was alive down there. And apparently they found one of these things, this cusk eel that is entirely without a visible face. And you know what? When I look at it, I do see a kind of chaos, at at least intuitively. Because what is chaos? I mean, at, at its heart, I think chaos is randomness. It's the implied lack of any purpose or direction or intent. And the implied... Lack of senses here suggests a random rather than an ordered relationship with the environment. Uh, but again, that's just you know our sort of like ignorant observation of its face. A fish like this certainly is not without senses in reality. In fact, most deep sea organisms have senses that would boggle the human mind, like extreme sensitivity to subtle changes in water pressure or electric fields or things like that.
0: Right. I mean, it's highly evolved to thrive in its environment. And if you if you came along and you're like, I need to help this thing, I need to start drilling some holes in its head. Right. uh, You know, you would you would do it great harm. Um, And I guess that's kind of the plot of the third creature from the Black Lagoon film. Right. The creature walks among us. Uh, It's just, you know, scientists taking the creature and trying to turn him into something that he is not like applying order to him, trying to make him a human. With disastrous results, of course.
2: Yes, of course. That is a tragic film. Uh, yeah, I think we should all take the uh, we we should all take a page from the book of do no harm, right? I mean, you, you don't don't just assume somebody needs holes drilled in their face, right? It, wait until if they ask you to drill holes in their face, okay. But you know, this is not the time for
0: initiative. <laughs> so certainly one of the more thought provoking creatures uh, in in the book in the classic. Uh, but, uh, but it's absolutely just filled with, with creatures uh, that are, certainly to modern uh, readers, just instantly bizarre. And, uh, and some of them are even just mentioned in passing. And that's certainly the case with the one we're going to look at next, uh, which is known as look meat uh, or <laughs> fing or uh, shiro, uh, which can mean looks like meat or simply, uh, this is the one I like the best, the look flesh creature. Look, Mom, it's flesh. <laughs> Basically. So the look flesh creature actually pops up numerous times in the book, uh, often just casually listed alongside generic things like green birds or weeping willows. And as Anne Barrow explains, the look flesh creature is essentially a denizen of the global, timeless, big rock candy mountain. <laughs> uh, you know, this, of course, is the old hobo song about, you know, the, the utopia of hobos.
2: Right. Uh, where they hung the jerk who invented work. Uh, yeah, there's cigarette trees. Uh, the cigarette trees, uh,
0: the, the dogs all have rubber teeth and the cops have wooden legs. Right. So she describes the look flesh creature as, quote, a fabled creature, the recurring animalian motif of numerous utopian passages in the text, usually associated with the burial place of deities. So uh, it's been described as a as being a mass of flesh that looks like the liver of an ox, but with two eyes. And if you take some meat off of it, you cut some meat off of it and you eat it. uh, Well, more meat instantly grows back on the look flesh creature. So it's essentially the utopian idea of never ending meat. It's all you can eat meat right there on the creature. And this would have especially resonated with impoverished rural peoples, uh, you know, the ancient world.
2: Uh, this reminds me of something that I didn't understand when we first discovered it from Russian folklore uh, ba- last October when you were talking about that artifact that was the self-setting tablecloth. Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't sound all that interesting until you realized, like, oh, maybe what it's talking about is that it will magically replenish food automatically.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea of here here is something I can count on all the time to give me sustenance, uh, to give me uh, a, you know, a meal and, 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 and drink, or in this case, just flesh, just some straight up meat. Here is this marvelous creature that once you find it, you have meat for life. It just regenerates all the time. It's the the goose that laid the golden meat. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't find an image of this, Joe, but for, just for us, I included a picture of a cow's liver, mm-hmm. which you can look at and just imagine like two googly eyes staring back at you. Uh, I find it interesting that it has eyes like like what is, you know, going from a creature that has no face and no eyes to this creature, which doesn't really have. I mean, all it does is exist to be eaten and to regrow the meat that you eat. But it has eyes like you have to, I guess, make eye contact with it the entire time.
2: Well, That reminds me, okay, so what are eyes for? Eyes are for navigating one's environment and for, for, you know, sensing your relationship to other objects, for being able to detect prey or detect predators. Uh, But yeah, does this thing not
0: want to be eaten? Does it need to try to get away from you when it sees you? Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe the eyes are there. So you do have to make eye contact with it. So you can't completely forget that it's a living organism. I don't know. Uh, It's, uh, yeah, I have no idea.
2: So I was trying to find examples in nature of wild organisms that mimic raw meat in reality. And I did find a few that are, that are very interesting. Now, one, I don't know if it mimics raw meat for any reason, but it does look very cool. There's a species of fungus that is known as Fistulina hepatica. It's a fungus with a fruiting body that's often said to look like beef steak, or like beef liver, or like ox tongue, and it really, really does look a lot like raw liver or meat, especially sometimes when you cut it open. Uh, the The name hepatica in the species name comes from the word for liver. Uh, I've read that it's found in parts of Europe, in Africa, and North America. I think I've mainly seen it referred to as growing in like the British Isles. But I included a cross section for you to look at here, Rob. And I don't know, when you cut
0: it open, it looks like Wagyu beef. Uh, it does look like meat. Yeah, I, it, it looks like flesh. Look, flash, if you will.
2: Yes, and when you cut it, apparently, uh, it will it will have a red juice that runs from it, just like the myoglobin running out of a you know a raw steak that you'd cut open. Uh, it is edible, at least in some growth stages, and sometimes has been used in cooking. But I don't know. I've seen. Uh, differing accounts on different websites. I was looking at some saying, "Yeah, it's a you know, it's a good mushroom. It's a it's a choice product." I've seen other things kind of negging its taste and texture, saying that it's kind of tough and sour, acidic tasting. Hmm. I'm a pretty adventurous eater, by the way, and it it does look like like something I would be hesitant to to bite into.
0: Um, well, I mean with, with all things uh, mushroom related, uh, you know I would want somebody to vouch for it that it isn't you know <laughs> to me personally right and uh, and make sure I'm following some sort of instructions on uh, preparation, but I mean I, I'd give it a shot I'd, i I would like to to try the meat of the look flesh creature, sure, uh, whatever reality it takes.
2: Now, as I said a minute ago, I could not find any evidence that its resemblance to raw meat is at all adaptive. It seems like it's probably just a coincidence that it looks like raw meat. This Mm -hmm. is a parasitic fungus that grows on living or dead wood, such as oak. Uh, But there are organisms that resemble raw meat that absolutely do so for evolutionary reasons, where it is not just a coincidence. Probably the most uh, exciting example is the genre of plants that are widely known as carrion flowers. uh, Mm -hmm. That uh, probably the the most famous of which is the Titan arum, also known as the Amorphophallus or Amorphophallus uh, titanum. Which parse that name for a minute. It basically means like huge, weird
0: phallus. Mm -hmm. And then these are very impressive-looking flowers.
2: Uh, yeah, amazing. So the, the Amorphophallus titanum is a giant, gigantic flowering plant that's native to Sumatra. It only blooms usually once every two to ten years in the wild, and each bloom only lasts about a day in the wild. So its reproductive window is is extremely narrow compared to its total lifespan. And when it opens, it unfurls this giant ring of uh, something that looks like flower petals, but they're not actually petals. It's a type of modified leaf tissue called a spathe But it looks almost exactly like glistening raw beef. And the blooming corpse flower here emits a smell of rotting meat. It actually emits a, a complex bouquet of smells. But one of the dominant aromas within that is the smell of rotting meat in order to attract insects that are normally either carrion feeders or would be flies looking to lay their larvae in a rotting corpse of something in the forest. These are the plant's pollinators. So by emitting the smell of meat and looking like meat, it draws in things that are trying to find some dead meat in the forest. They crawl all over it. They get the pollen of the plant on their little legs and bodies, and then they carry that off to another big old flower that smells like meat.
0: So it's rotten meat sex. <laughs> but, you know, one can imagine that if you encountered something like this, you, you might think, well, this is limitless meat. This is meat growing like a plant. Um, so it, it, and of course, this makes me think of, of all of our various modern enterprises involving um, you know artificial meat, synthetic flesh, synthetic flesh, um, but also um, you know vat grown meat, etc. Like it's it's kind of all an attempt to to make the look flesh creature a reality.
2: I wonder if every time we say synthetic flesh, Seth's going to drop that uh, that Doctor X cue in there.
0: Synthetic flesh. I hope so. Um, I also have to say, as far as like weird mushrooms go, there's a lot of mushroom descriptions, uh, in the Shanghai Jing. Uh, the, for instance, uh, mushroom people show up in the, the Burle uh, uh, translation. There are a lot of different types of people, but there's also a mushroom dog at one point, Ooh. Uh, which, uh, I don't which think kind I came interested. that. Oh yeah. It's in there. Mushroom dog. Tell me about the mushroom dog. Um, I think it was more – it was one of these things where it, it's not – I don't think it's actually a dog that's made out of mushrooms or is like a – or grows like a mushroom. It's something to do with like the description of the, of the animal. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah. I, I was going to
2: try to see – can you get a shelf-stable like dried mushroom dog that you reconstitute?
0: No, I know. But that would be – it sounds like that would be in line with the, the look-flesh creature for sure. <laughs>
1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: All right, let's look at another creature. This next one is called uh, the Wu, um, which Beryl translates as escort my. Uh, but here's the, the Strasbourg translation for this uh, description. In the land of the Lin clan is a rare beast as large as a tiger, five colored and with a tail longer than its body. It is called the Wu when riding it one can cover 1000 uh, li in a single day uh so uh, and then Beryl's translation is virtually the the same except with a different term for it so this is a fabulous animal in the um, in the illustrations that uh, strasburg provides it looks yeah kind of like a a fierce horse i mm-hmm. guess you would say it looks kind of like a horse with a with a dog like face yeah It's a a fabulous animal that pops up in other texts as well, including the ancient book of songs. And it's sometimes described as being white with black stripes, as being a righteous animal that is either strictly vegetarian or is only eating the meat of animals that have died of natural causes. And so there's apparently been some discussion that that this could have been uh, in some way connected to the panda. They could have been based on descriptions of the panda or, you know, it kind of then takes on a life of its own in the same way that the Kailin has been linked to giraffe. And interestingly enough, uh, one of these magical creatures is depicted in one of the uh, the Fantastic Beasts movies. Um, I don't think it looks particularly panda-esque in those, but uh, uh, they made it look uh, otherworldly and weird for sure. Now, in the, the last episode, I mentioned in passing uh, the land of Ghoul, mm-hmm. uh, which, which Beryl mentioned. So, of, of course, I had to read more and, and find out what's up with the land of, of Ghoul, uh, which is also known as uh, May. Uh, so, this is what uh, Beryl uh, has in her translation The land of Ghoul. The beings there have a human body with a black head, and their eyes are set vertically in their face. Whoa, vertical eyes. Yeah. And she she writes that a parallel passage in a 5th century BCE text describes the inhabitants of Ghoul as having porcine heads, the heads of pigs with vertical eyes, but also loose hair, which um, I'm guessing means like wildish hair. And uh, Strasbourg discusses them as the, the, the May hobgoblins, sometimes associated with other creatures, the chai hobgoblins and the, the, wangling, uh, the wangling goblins. Uh, so they're all dangerous creatures that lurk in the wilds. And if you happen to be an unwary traveler, they might jump out and attack you. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, like, you know, obviously the words goblin and hobgoblin are, are English language words and mm-hmm. Western words that have been um, put into uh, you know we're engaging in transliteration here but but still there's something about there's something that a goblin is that feels universal there's something like a goblin in every culture now would that extend to the fact that there's a troll too in every culture (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't know. But uh, I mean, troll, uh, ogre, these are other terms you often find in uh, translations of, of, um, of mythic and folkloric texts from, you know, from, from various Western uh, uh, cultures, but also from, from Eastern cultures, you know, when, when describing things like there's the, there, there are these, there's the ogre, there's the, the giant, there's the dragon. Like these are kind of the, the basic forms that uh, a lot of our stories revolve around. Now just briefly there
2: is uh there's one creature that in Strasbourg's translation was referred to as the brave pig and I, <laughs> I I really like that name.
0: Yeah, yeah, this one. So um apparently uh it literally means hero pig. Uh so brave pig, hero pig. Mm-hmm. Um but as to what it actually is, it seems like it's a porcupine. There's a lot of discussion that it's just a porcupine. Uh this is the barrel translation. There is an animal on this mountain which looks like a hog, but it has white hair that is as long as a large hairpin and black at the tips. Its name is the porcupine. Um, so, uh, yeah, I like that. The brave pig, the porcupine. I can see it, you know. Strasburg mentions
2: in his commentary on the brave pig that it has been regarded by many commentators as just a porcupine. This is like the mundane animal, a porcupine being described mm-hmm. here. Um but he does mention that Gopu in his early commentary on the classic wrote about this and said that the brave pig was several feet in length And that it shot its quills at things. Uh, Now, this is interesting because I was still under the mistaken impression that the porcupine can, yeah, shoot its quills from a distance. uh, But apparently that's not true. Strasburg mentions this and I looked it up. There is apparently not actually evidence that the porcupine can shoot its quills from a distance. A lot of things, I think, just run up to a porcupine and get its quills stuck in their snout or their nose or something and then, you know, run squealing off. But it, but it doesn't actually shoot them like a projectile.
0: Huh. Yeah. I, w- I wonder where that exactly comes from. If it's, Is it based in just people winding up with, um, with porcupine quills stuck in them and, and, and needing to alter the story so they don't? <laughs> no, I didn't try to touch it. No. <laughs> <laughs> it shot that. It jumped out of the, out of the edge of the woods. It shot me with quills and then it ran away.
2: I mean it does kind of remind me of how you ever seen the phenomenon of uh, a kid is being overly rough with a pet and then the pet mm-hmm. kind of lashes out at them and then the kid immediately starts saying like it it jumped at me it was being mean you know like they're they're it, all like within seconds trying to change the story to the pet being the aggressor.
0: Oh yeah. Uh yeah, child t- t- children versus pets that old that old rivalry.
2: You know, just by association, uh, through talking about the porcupine, this also made me want to briefly mention another creature that, uh, Strasbourg translates as the thoroughly odd, like mm-hmm. thoroughly hyphen odd or chung chi. And so the translation goes 260 li farther west stands Mount Gui. There is a beast dwelling on its heights whose form resembles an ox with the needles of a way porcupine. It is called chung chi and it makes a sound like a dog howling. It is a man eater. And so, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the last line there. Uh, it's, yeah, it's got needles. It's like an ox, needles like a porcupine, howls like a dog, and it eats people. And so, uh, Strasberg says that the thoroughly odd is said to, uh, eat people who wear long hair untied, which he says is culturally interesting because that is the style that was believed at the time to be characteristic of demons and of shamans.
0: Yes, I read that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And that's interesting because of the thing we talked about in the last episode, uh, or Actually, no, I, I guess we didn't really get into this in depth, but the idea that uh, – or the question of where a lot of this knowledge that's recorded in the classic of the mountains and seas comes from, some of it may have been collected from traditions that were part of the sort of uh, – the, the smaller, more localized shaman leadership culture of ancient China uh, that was over time replaced by, by more uh, central or imperialist rule –
0: yeah, I mean, you can imagine someone traveling out to these different areas and saying, OK, well, what do you guys believe out here? Which mm-hmm. gods do you worship? And sometimes they're the same gods or some of the same gods, but with you know different uh, twists and turns and how they're presented. Other times they're they're different entities entirely. And then asking, well, what kind of creatures are out here? What kind of strange creatures are out here? What do they do? What do they look like?
2: Uh, yeah, and apparently this one, it likes to eat people with the hairstyle that would have been common of shamans and of demons. Uh, it also uh, Strasberg says that sometimes the victims are consumed beginning with the head some yes. <laughs> sources start with that other versions say that they are consumed beginning with the feet um uh which he says you know that could be a result of differences in early translations like one translation of the classic says one way and another translation says a different way um, but then th- there are several interesting things here. So he says the Thoroughly Odd was historicized as another untalented son of a Thearch the lesser brilliance in a passage in Zoe's narratives, uh the the same passage that mentioned the Hundun. Remember the idea of the evil version of the Hundun as this mm-hmm. like bad offspring of the Thearch? Well here mm-hmm. we've got the thoroughly odd as the untalented son of the Thearch, which makes me think of the comparison to the Gnostic Demiurge or the, the Gnostic uh you know like Yaldba Oath, the bad god who created the world who was like the, the crappy son of a higher being.
0: Right. And of course you can't help but uh compare that to um uh to the human world right like the like the the, the good for nothing prince uh, right, in yes. any given scenario right
2: uh, the guy yeah. t- the new ceo of the company taken over for his dad and his, everybody's yeah. just like oh no And then uh, finally, Strasburg just notes that there are other descriptions of the Thoroughly Odd in different sources and places uh, throughout uh, history. There's a place where he's referred to uh, as a tiger with wings. There are other places where the Thoroughly Odd is uh, said to be, quote, a perverse creature who devours those who are loyal and trustworthy, but offers freshly killed meat to the evil and rebellious. Perhaps because an alternate version of this text describes him as having a human body with a dog's head and as making a sound like a dog, Gopu, in an encomium, pronounced him a divine dog. Hmm. But, yeah, I like this idea of he's a perverse deity who goes out and he, like, eats good people, but if you're bad, he'll bring you meat.
0: Oh, man. That is indeed thoroughly odd. All right, well, we have, I think, <laughs> one more to discuss here, okay. and that is, um, and again, the book is filled with, with creatures that are mentioned uh, with a fair amount of, a uh, little bit of depth, or otherwise just in passing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's gods, it's fantastic creatures, it's fantastic descriptions of, of commonplace creatures, it's, uh, it's passing references to things like the, uh, like, like the, the, the synthetic flesh creature that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Synthetic flesh. Um, so there's just all sorts of stuff in there. Things that, that were animals, things that might have been animal, uh, real life animals, and then everything uh, else you can imagine. Uh, but this last one here is the, the Zhu Yan, the uh, Vermilion Yan beast. And it's described as an ape with a white head and red feet. Uh, and it's an omen of great war if glimpsed by humans. Strasbourg writes that Gopu pondered that this was one of the beasts along with the, the, the Fushi bird that, quote, marked the boundaries of reason. <laughs> and so Strasbourg quotes the poet Gopu here. Uh, I, I, this is a nice little translation, it has a nice flow to it. Quote, The Fushi and the Vermilion Yan Beast, if seen, mean war. Different species, identical elect. A cosmic pattern one cannot ignore. It must be in their nature to be so, but their method is too subtle to explore.
2: Okay, so we know what they mean, but we can't say why. Don't even yeah. ask.
0: Yeah, and the illustration uh, that uh, Strasbourg includes uh, uh, from the old text here—it um, just looks kind of like a monkey, I guess. There's not—it's not really one of the more elaborate illustrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a monkey that you do not want to see because it's just a dire omen. Uh, and, of course, that's something that pops up with a lot of these uh, creatures described. You know, it's about what does it look like? What does it do? Um, if you can eat it, what that will do for you uh, medicinally. But then also sometimes like just seeing them, what that does for you. What, what is it? Is it an omen? Uh, does it mean that something good will happen? There'll be a bumper crop or will there be a great war? As the Lost Boys sang, I'm the monkey that you've always been afraid of. <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
2: Well Robert, I have so enjoyed this journey through the classic of the mountains and the seas.
0: Yeah, this has been fun. And uh yeah, for for anyone out there who's interested, you can you can definitely get uh English translations of the Shanghai Jing. Um, we mentioned the Strasbourg and the Beryl. Those are both definitely, uh, affordable texts, but there are other illustrated, there are other, uh, illustrated versions as well. There are other translations available. Uh, so yeah, dive into it. There are even some, you know, good resources online, people doing, uh, you know, creature breakdowns and lists and their own illustrations on some of these. And of course, some of these names and, and entities have taken on new life and, in fictions as well, uh, I was running across some of that when I was researching um, the, these various entities that pop up. Now, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, do you have anything additional to to add about, uh, about the Shanghai Jing, about any of the, the the creatures and entities that we discussed in this episode? Uh, if so, we would love to hear from you, even if you maybe you're an artist and you want to give a give it a crack and, and draw the Hundun or some other creature. Uh, do so. We'd love to take a look at it. Oh yeah, I wonder if we can get a uh, a show t-shirt with the Hundun or the Dsigong. That I would be that would be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'd be up for it. Hundun stickers to just put everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, you know where to find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. You get your core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, Mondays, we try to do a listener mail. Wednesday, usually an artifact episode. And Friday, we do Weird House Cinema, which is just our chance to focus on weird films. Uh, And wherever you happen to listen to the podcast, wherever you get it, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe if the platform gives you uh, the power to do so.
2: Huge thanks.